I wouldn't call myself a big Twitter guy. Are you still an egg? I'm still an egg, yes. Okay, we'll work on that. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we tell you how to use Twitter to promote your research and advance your career. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 69. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Welcome back, Dan. Josh, how's it going? It is going great. I'm excited about this topic tonight. Okay, I'm excited about this topic as well. Twitter, it's your thing. You know me, I love some social media. You are you are the social media guy in this organization, because I am certainly not. Yeah, I don't know if this counts as social media, but back when we were in college, I guess it was pre-social media, right? Um, no, that's when Facebook started. When we were when, in undergrad? When I was an undergrad. I had it as an undergrad. Oh, wow, you were ahead of the time. Uh, and Napster, do you remember Napster? That was great. I had a blog. Yeah, you did. You had a webcam. I did. Uh, when I was in college, as an undergrad, I had a webcam in my dorm room that broadcast 24-7 for at least three years. Keep in mind, though, this was the 1990s, and it broadcast one image every like five minutes, right? Yeah, I had stats of where my viewers were coming from, and there was this one <laughs> this one hit from Australia we got every morning. One like IP address, yeah. Yeah, it was probably when my roommate was getting out of the shower. I don't know. Yeah, well, luckily it wasn't you. <laughs> we had a privacy screen, so it's okay. Before we get into our ethanol, we have another Patreon shout-out. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Yeah, I wanted to thank Arlen, who supported the podcast through our Patreon page. Thanks, Arlen. If you'd like to contribute to the show, you can go to patreon.com slash hellophd. All right, Dan, our beer this week comes from a listener again. I mentioned on our last show, Jada was kind enough to send us some beer from up in Massachusetts, and she actually sent us some other beers as well. And so we're going to drink one more of these beers that Jada sent us. And this is the Quinn's Amber Ale from Wachusett's Brewing Company. It's going to be tough to outdo last week's beers, I think, but let's give it a try. Well, those were IPAs, Dan, and as I mentioned, we did our feedback survey, yeah. and there's at least one person who said less IPAs. Statistically, that's resounding <laughs> feedback to stop talking about IPAs. Yeah, you got to figure there's at least you know ten times that many people who feel that way also. So, I bet that's right. So we're going to go IPA free. I might say, Dan, at least until summer. I'd like to announce my resignation from Hello PhD. We're looking for new co-hosts. Now, I'm saying it here, Dan. I'm putting a putting a flag down. No IPAs until summer. Can I secretly keep IPAs like behind the chair here? Well, you know, nobody can see us. We That's could true. actually drink IPAs and pretend this amber ale is deliciously <laughs> hoppy, just like with the IPAs I enjoy. Well, believe it or not, this is Gwen's amber ale. So let's give it a taste and see what you think. It's good. It's refreshing. It is decidedly less punchy. Well, I'll say, Dan, I owe a lot to Amber Ale because I would say Amber Ales are really what what really were my gateway beer into craft beers. I drank a lot of Amber Ales. Very approachable. I always recommend an Amber Ale if I'm with a friend at a place that serves beer and they're not a beer person. 
I think an amber ale is a, is a fairly approachable one, don't you think? Yeah, it doesn't sit on the palate quite so long. So you take a drink, it's refreshing, it tastes good, but you don't, you're not left with that bitter aftertaste. And yeah. a lot of people don't like that about yeah. beer. And I'll say with this one, Dan, this one has a little bit of that nutty character that I kind of like. Excellent. Well, thanks again to Jada for expanding our horizons. Yep. And if you'd like to send us beer, reach out, let me know, and I'll let you know how to make it happen. We will drink it on the show. Unless it's an IPA, in which case we won't drink it until summer. <laughs> I might drink it before summer. <laughs> That's true. We might drink it. We just way. won't talk about it. All right, Dan, are you ready to move on to some science in the news? Ready as always. All right, Dan, do you use opioids? Oh my gosh, we just had some ethanol, Josh, slow down. Uh, the answer is no, not that I know of. You probably are aware that opioid use and abuse has really been on the rise in at least the United States over the last number of years. Yeah, and making a lot of news. I mean, there are communities that are really hit hard by this where um, families with Several children are dying from opioid overdose. It's really horrifying. Yeah, and this is a little off topic, but as as I, w- as I was researching this topic, I saw one headline that was the United States consumes the vast majority of all the world's opioids. Hooray. <laughs> Number one. Dan, you've probably heard of the CDC. They put out a weekly report called Morbidity and Mortality Weekly, MMWR. Um, I'm not subscribed to that, but Okay. Yeah, it sounds so, terrible. It sounds like something Wednesday Adams subscribes to. <laughs> this week, the there was a, an article that was entitled Characteristics of Initial Prescription Episodes and Likelihood, likelihood of Long-Term Opioid Use from 2006 to 2015 in the United States. Okay. What the researchers did, these were researchers from the University of Arkansas, they wanted to know of individuals who were first-time opioid users. So they were prescribed opioids for the first time, um, not for any chronic condition. Um, what Was there some relationship between the length of time they were prescribed the opioid and their chance of actually transitioning over into some addictive behavior? Okay, this seems important because there are valid uses for opioids. I see you've got on the list, there's oxycodone and hydrocodone. And so if you have a surgery or you get a bad injury, you could be prescribed these medicines. And I assume your doctor would like to know what's the risk because there are long-term side effects for these things, but also addiction is a, a pretty terrible side effect. Yeah, absolutely, Dan. And and so typically what happens is when a patient gets their initial opioid prescription, often it's just a one-day supply. And again, we're not talking about any chronic conditions um, or cancer, but just these sort of acute uh, acute injuries that that you might need some additional pain relief. So, so what the researchers did was they actually tracked prescription records of around 1.3 million patients between June 2006 and September 2015. And they took a random 10% sample of all these patient records during that time from this IMS LifeLink database, which apparently has commercial health plan information from all these individuals who are part of these managed care plans in the U.S. I didn't realize that was all out there in some database, but did you know that? It seems valuable as long as they're protecting the identities of the people. I assume that was all part of the process. Yeah, and so actually all of the data that the researchers obtained was completely de-identified. And this so, is just globally unique identifiers mm-hmm. and some some data. That's right. And so all of the patients in the cohort were 18 or older, cancer-free, 
and had at least one opioid prescription between 2006 and 2015. And also, they had no history of opioid abuse. Hopefully, allegedly, this was their first time receiving opioids. So what they found was if it was a patient's initial opioid prescription of just a one-day supply, they had about a 6% chance of still being on opioids a year later. Because the pain was bad, or is the assumption that this is because they are now addicted? Well, so that's a little unclear. So this study, that was outside the scope of this study. Okay, but 6%, if you if you get opioids for one day, 6% of those people will have them a year later. Exactly. Now, if you were to bump up that initial um, term of prescription to a five-day supply, your chance of still being on the opioid a year later jumps to about 10%. If you actually go one more day to a six-day supply, you're at 12%. And a 10-day supply, you're going to still be on opioids about 20% of the time. Is, is this just a measure of how bad the initial pain was? Or is the uh, did they do some work to prove that this is actually an addiction? And then follow-up question for you, Josh. I'm sure you're ready for this one. How do they continue to get prescriptions for opioids if they're exhibiting addictive behavior? I don't know the answer to that one, Dan. I'm not a doctor. Okay. I'm not that kind of doctor. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I don't you just know. play one on the radio? <laughs> that presumably, you know, still going to your doctor complaining of pain or I, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I mean, these numbers seem like they'd be really difficult to track because I imagine there are some people who got the one day of opioid uh, prescription and then there's probably some number that get addicted and go to the black market to get it. They don't go back to the doctor for it. So I don't know. Or, or maybe this is a sign of people who go to get a prescription and then they continue to go back to fill prescriptions to sell it on the black market. Oh, that's, an, really inter- that's to- an interesting idea, Dan, because I was going to say, you know, this is just tracking individuals who receive this from their medical provider through a prescription, but I believe there's also data out there that a lot of people who become addicted actually are buying it on a black market or get it from a friend or relative. So This could be a measure of how quickly you become a drug dealer. <laughs> that's an interesting alternate hypothesis. I will say, Dan, that... The other data from this study, they not only looked at one-year probabilities, but also three-year probabilities. And, and of course, those numbers were less than the one-year numbers. But for someone who received just an initial five-day supply of opioids, about 5% of those people were still on the, the medications three years later. And that actually plateaued up to about 20% of people who were on a month supply were still on the opioid after three years. So... Regardless of of the full meaning of these um, continued prescriptions, I am really pleased to see that there are people doing research on this. We know enough about how opioids work to understand that it is really hijacking some of your uh, neuro reward pathways. I get really concerned when we treat that as a crime and not as a medical condition. And I'm excited to see research about it because that means we're going to apply uh, some scientific rationality for understanding it and maybe treating it rather than trying to punish it away. Yeah, and one unique and maybe troubling finding from this study was they certainly were looking at some of the the well-known prescribed pain meds like the oxycodone or oxycontin, the the Vicodin, the hydrocodone. But also they looked at another another opioid called tramadol, had slightly different action, was thought to be one that was slightly less long-acting that they was actually prescribed because they thought it had less addictive potential, but that one actually seemed to be just as bad as the others, at least in this study. Just goes to show, we don't always know the, the long-term effects of these new medicines. So 
Um, please, people that are doing this research, continue. This is really important stuff. Yep, and we will post a link to the article and a really great write-up about it on the show notes. All right, Dan, tweet, tweet. Is there, is there a bird? Dan, I am sure there have been plenty of PIs who have complained about their lab members browsing Facebook or Instagram or Snapchatting images of Western blot bands with those cute dog face filters. I'm pretty sure that's most of what my undergrad accomplished when uh, she was working in the lab with me. <laughs> it, was, it was that and making the parafilm uh, bouncy balls. I mean, let's be honest. The only reason we weren't doing those things is because it didn't, didn't exist, exist Yeah, We had yeah. parafilm, though. And we did have parafilm. And I did play with it. Okay. And it, it is flammable. Uh, what if, though, I told you social media could actually help you broaden your scientific network or even help you share your scientific results? I'd call you a liar and throw you out of the studio. <laughs> well, let me try to change your mind on that. Okay. So, Dan, I was at a conference recently. I think I mentioned that on our last episode. And one of the sessions was pretty cool, one that piqued my interest, and that was on how scientists can use social media professionally. I mean, you're saying more than just updating your LinkedIn profile every six years? Exactly, Dan. And you really should update your LinkedIn profile. Every six years. (laughs) So I was sitting there, Dan, watching this presentation, when all of a sudden... Guess who was up on the screen? It wasn't me. It was me. Oh, fantastic. That's much better. I was up on the slide and was being used as an example of how to use Twitter to share your research results. So can we get you on the show to talk about it, Josh? Sure, Dan. Would you like to interview me right now? I would. Tell us more, Josh. (laughs) Sure, sure. You remember, because we discussed it a few episodes ago, uh, recently published a paper about graduate school applications in the GRE. And that was back in January when it came out. I tweeted out that the study was published and included a link to the article. And it was so cool. It was retweeted and liked over 100 times. And I know this is nothing like Neil deGrasse Tyson or uh, certain political leaders. But for me, it was a pretty cool day. So one thing that's pretty neat about Twitter these days, uh, you're not a big Twitter guy, are you, Dan? Um. I wouldn't call myself a big Twitter guy, although recent political events have me following Twitter more closely than I should. Are you still an egg? I'm still an egg, yes. Okay, we'll work on that. Okay. We'll work on that. But one thing that's cool about Twitter these days is it's very easy to see analytics of each and every tweet that you put out there. And so this one tweet about my published paper, I looked actually tonight, and it's been seen by over 20,000 people with over a 1,000 clicks on the actual link to the paper. Now, you know that I refresh your page 30 times a minute (laughs) and click 100 times a day, right? You and my mom. Yep. But what I thought was cool about that, Dan, is how many more people probably read my paper because of that one tweet than what other methods are there of finding out about research papers. Yeah, if you had put it on Facebook, it would have... Been my mom and feed, yeah. <laughs> my mom and my high school friends would have. Honey, that is so nice. Now, what is this about? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Technically, your paper was pretty provocative. I mean, it was the paper about how uh, the GRE is not a great predictor of success in grad school. I think I'm thinking back to papers I published on the particular amino acid that binds to actin in this protein on certain types of cells. I doubt that I would have gotten the same traction, but maybe. Well, you know, one thing I've I've noticed, Dan, is some faculty. Um, even at my institution, who have increasingly uh, jumped onto Twitter and have been not only tweeting about their own research, but their colleagues' research that they find interesting. And while I'm not in the fields that they are in, 
uh, it's been interesting to see there's definitely dialogue that's going on, not just between faculty and other faculty, but between other graduate students and postdocs who are within that field. And that's pretty cool. And all in 144 characters? What kind of messages are, are we making? This is not active peer review. This is just sharing? That's just sharing information and, and making contacts with people. But one thing that I thought was cool that I wanted to share was not just being able to share my research on Twitter, but prior to publishing the study, I actually tweeted out that I was excited. I submitted this paper about the GRE. And it just so happened, unbeknownst to me, that one of the managing editors of Science Careers happens to be a Twitter follower of mine. And so based on that tweet, she actually reached out and that interaction actually led to our paper being discussed on a Science Careers article and featured on their social media page. Just because it happened to be on Twitter. Cool. And that would not have happened otherwise. Your mom would have told her friend about it, though, <laughs> which would have been great. <laughs> That's true at the bridge game. At the bridge game, yeah. <laughs> my, my mom does not play. My grandma played bridge. Bingo. Also, <laughs> my son got a paper. Oh, my goodness. But another thing I've noticed is really in the past couple of years since I've been more active on Twitter in a professional way, even going to conferences in my field has become a more rich experience because I, I'll i seek out these people that I've interacted with or I thought seemed interesting based on their tweets, and then we meet in real life. And again, I would have not really had that in. A lot of times I think that's what prevents you from networking with people is you don't have that, I guess that in. What are you going to say to them when you walk up, hi, um, uh, excuse me, could I talk to you about a thing? But you can go up and say, hey, I noticed you shared this article. I thought it was really great. Just wanted to let you know I'm following you and whatever. Or even we had... Or you maybe already tweeted to them. Yeah, we had a little exchange on on Twitter. Um, It's a very easy and quick way to interact directly with people that you probably couldn't interact with. Can I throw in my one Twitter tip right here because it's it's relevant? <laughs> is it about putting up an actual avatar or? No, it's oh, like, keep okay. the egg. That okay. way nobody knows who you are. Uh-huh. I stay away from Twitter most of the time. But when I go to a conference, I love Twitter because there's this conversation happening um, in the background, especially during talks. So usually there'll be some hashtag that's part of that conference. And, you know, while you're sitting there kind of listening, maybe it's exciting, maybe it's not, but you can be having this conversation with other people in the room about what's happening in real time on the screen. And it's it's like, it's so much more interactive than just sitting there and passively consuming the slides. And it, it gets a conversation that kind of spins off to the side and, and can continue afterwards. I, I think it's cool. And so I take an iPad with me, I set up you know, a Twitter app and keep up with it. Yeah, no, that's definitely true, Dan. And also, if for one reason or another, you can't attend the conference... You can follow along some of the high points from back home. Then you just feel sad because you're not there. Yeah, I I usually feel that way too. So anyway, Dan, um, all this got me thinking that Twitter really is an underutilized resource, I think, for scientists. And it has a lot more to offer than just, you know, sharing memes or keeping up with whether America still exists or... (laughs) Deep thoughts at 3 (laughs) a.m. So I think what I would like to see is I would like to see more scientists utilizing this tool Uh, just to build community in whatever it is their interests are, but also to share their research with people who might be interested both in their field and outside their field. So Dan, I sat down today and interviewed Dr. Stephanie Page, who is a postdoc at UNC Chapel Hill, but she's also the founder of the hashtag Black and STEM on Twitter. And STEM standing for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, right? That's right. That's right. Not plant people. 
No, no, no STEM. I mean, they would be included. They're science. That's true, yeah. yeah, they're science. So anyway, this is a really neat story about how uh, just a simple tweet really changed Stephanie's professional life, but also led to the creation of this really dynamic community that's had a big impact on lots of scientists. Stephanie Page, postdoc in pharmacology here at UNC, um, creator and curator of Black and STEM, or hashtag Black and STEM, on Twitter. Um, we also have a Facebook page, Black and STEM. Um, would characterize myself as what scientists, mom, social media activist, maybe? Yeah. So I guess first thing, how long have you been on Twitter in general? Wow. Um, I think, let's see, Twitter told me I joined Twitter <laughs> in a, I think it was 2010, 2010. So and what made you join? Another social, social media network and, you know, kind of the same thing that happened with Facebook. I avoided it because I thought, you know, it was just another distraction. I'm not the most social person. But then, you know, enough people said things about it, so I was curious, and I joined. And, yeah, it was just, oh, this is fun, you know. So were your reasons for joining professional or just personal? They were more personal. Um, but I will say that it really didn't pick up until I started to think of it, think of Twitter for professional uses. So first it was just, okay, I want to see what this is. You know, I'm curious my friends are using it and then I began to really think about it more professionally and that's when I really started using Twitter mm -hmm. so tell me about Black and STEM and just tell me how that got started it's crazy um, still to this day it's been three years and it's kind of takes me back in a way to, to think about it um what I noticed happening on Twitter was that there were these communities kind of popping up around different interests and identities. And you know, I was very much inspired by um, people like um, Jamie Broadnax doing Black Girl Nerds and Don Gibson doing Blurred Chat. Um, and just kind of saw these things gelling and I was involved in some of them. But at the same time I was here in graduate school, I was in IMSD, which was extremely beneficial. But being a mom and a graduate student, I had to miss a lot of the socials and literally just had this idea that, you know, well, Twitter allows people to socialize from different locations and it doesn't rely on everyone coming to one location and doesn't necessarily rely on everyone being completely free of work or parenting responsibility. So I'm just going to, you know, throw this out here and just see maybe 20, 30 people will gel around being black and being a STEM professional. And literally was snowed in one day, <laughs> was snowed in, terrible snowstorm a few years back started the hashtag and it trended <laughs> so tell us so what was your first tweet with black and stem my first tweet with black and stem was um let me get the 
the wording right. It was roll call, but it was a play on words. So instead of, instead of R-O-L-L, it was R-O-L-E, roll call. And then just, you know, black and stem roll call. What's your stem? And <laughs> it just completely took off. And how many people responded to your roll call? Um, I think in the first two weeks, um, which is kind of back then, it took longer to do Twitter analytics. Uh, they said over a thousand people responded. And in terms of who was actually searching and using the hashtag, um, it was an effort to trend worldwide. So we didn't find out that it trended worldwide till after the fact. Now you kind of see things happen in more real time. But yeah, when I started getting phone calls from, you know, media sources, like, do you want to talk about this? This is huge. And I'm kind of like, what's huge? You trended worldwide. (laughs) Um, And that, that actually happened, you know, a few times, you know, and, and so it kind of, popped up on a lot of different radars. So how much time passed between that first snowed-in day <laughs> when you made that tweet mm-hmm. and media contacting you? Um, I think the first article was out, so that was, I think, February 13th. The first major article was out. It was, I think, Fast Company was the first big article. That was, I believe, March 4th. Um so that's you know, it maybe took yeah, it took a week to two weeks to start to hear from people. So it was this huge turnaround to, of opportunities and people wanting to talk about Black and Sim and what it was. I mean, it wasn't even enough time to think of what what am I going to do with this? Mm-hmm. You know, I read articles now and I'm like, I had no idea what I wanted to do, yeah. and I said that like I I really don't know. Mm-hmm. So that was a, you said that was about three years ago. Yeah, 2012. So what's the status of Black and STEM today? Three years later. Three years later, um, it's amazing. Uh, I somehow people have really been motivated to maintain the community. Um, it's a searchable hashtag where we populate everything from job postings to people wanting to find. Um, experts in a field that they're interested in going to. We still use it to do chats. Um, we use it to, and we being the people of the community, um, we use it to connect journalists to scientific experts or technical experts. We use it to sometimes just get a good laugh because, you know, oh, there's someone, you know, a character on TV and they're black and stem, you know, like, it's just, it kind of, a lot gels around it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because now a lot of um, professional organizations use black and stem when they're advertising for grants and scholarships and things like oh, that. Oh, so they're, they're trying to tap into, that's a quick way they can tap into the community. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really awesome. And it's pretty amazing, I mean, I guess Twitter as a tool, mm-hmm. how instantly if you see something or hear something that might be of interest mm-hmm. to this community, within seconds, you can share it, and it's out there with everyone. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, it's it's great in that way. One thing that I've done is I've started these kind of lists of Twitter handles based on um, discipline, and 
I had a teacher, you know, write using the hashtag and say, I'm, I'm looking for chemists to talk to my class. Mm-hmm. And within seconds, I see that. And then there are chem- there were chemists who already responded, but I was able to go into my list and mm-hmm. say, okay, I can connect you to these people. And to me, that's kind of the point of it is now this teacher mm-hmm. in her classroom or his classroom has 10, 15 black chemists ranging, mm-hmm. you know, in chemical disciplines, talking and Skyping in with his class. You know, sometimes there are moments where you kind of see someone get their big moment mm-hmm. where, you know, we're a reporter for such and such media outlet and we want to feature a woman of color, you know, to talk about environmental sciences or ecology and you get to be a part of someone mm-hmm. <laughs> getting that moment. Well, that's actually a really good lead in to my next question, which was how has Black and STEM and this lonely random tweet uh, that snowballed into this huge movement and community, how has this impacted your professional network and what opportunities specifically have you had just because of this this interaction on Twitter, this experience on Twitter? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and maybe there are too many to tell you. There are, are there a, a lot. few that stand out to you? A few that stand out. Um, one is a future, near future. I'm extremely excited. Um, I was invited by the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine to talk next week and tell my story. And I'm going to sit down with a geneticist at Harvard, and we're going to talk to each other and have a conversation and in front of women and, and talk about our experiences and our stories and how big is that for a postdoc to present at the National Academies. Um, you know, being featured by Al Jazeera, or NPR, Fast Company, you know, getting my name into, you know, science, you know, things like that for this work that I'm very passionate about. But it, it does also put me into a realm in terms of doing science. Um, it was incredible for people to say, come work with me, <laughs> please come work in my lab or please come, you know, do your science here. But, you know, I it's it's also a platform. There are times where we share our science and talk about what we do. And, um, yeah, just huge things have happened. And it does. It kind of elevates you professionally mm-hmm. to be out there. And, you know, I know department chairs across the country. I know editors for journals across the country. And it's kind of, it's kind of unreal sometimes. That you met through Twitter. That I met through Twitter. Yeah. It's and, unreal. And you say you've had like offers to join your lab <laughs> yeah they, they were too far away but it's it it actually is pretty cool to connect with someone on twitter mm-hmm. just because one day you just decide to show you know i was showing some fluorescence data and they're like wow this is what you do and we just started talking about my work and my interests and they're like yeah you could come please come post out with me you know and mm-hmm. that's always a great feeling mm-hmm. because first and foremost I love science, and and it's great that people kind of recognize that. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely been about using Twitter as that platform. Mm -hmm. 
and I've interacted with some of the foremost environmental justice professionals, you know, people who have TV shows, you know, people who likely feature Nobel Prize winners, you know, you get to just kind of interact in this space, and it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, I do that all the time. I'm always interacting with Nobel Prize winners. Yeah, yeah that's usually what I do that on Thursday. That's my Nobel Prize winner Thursday. Yeah, I'll start that hashtag. <laughs> Nobel Prize Thursday. Uh, Nobel Prize Thursday. Thursday. Roll call. Where's all my Nobel laureates at? Uh, <laughs> you know what's funny is I don't know many on Twitter. <laughs> because they're all old. They're all like, ah, no. So what advice would you give to grad students, postdocs, who are maybe new to Twitter Mm -hmm. or maybe not even on Twitter? How, what advice would you give to them to use Twitter to expand their professional network? Um, the advice I would give to graduate students and postdocs wanting to expand their professional network is to, you know, start a Twitter, be yourself, but be considerate of, you know, what you're saying and how you're interacting. But um, now there are a lot of avenues to find people and connect to people. And nowadays, you can tweet someone whose work you're interested in and say, I'm interested in your work. Can I talk to you? Can I learn more? People are very open nowadays. And in the same way that scientists like talking at talking about their work at meetings, conferences, and poster sessions, we like talking about our work on Twitter. And it's a very great way to take, you know, someone who might be in a different time zone or in a different part of the country or part of the world, and immediately all of those limitations are reduced to just an internet connection. And, you know, I would just say kind of get out there and and peruse. And, you know, just like today, the Royal Society for Chemistry is having a Twitter poster session. It's amazing. So, you know, that could be a way. Jump on that hashtag. Sometimes you can search really generic things like really generic science terms, search bioinformatics, search biochemistry, search microbiology, and it will help you find people, it will help you find hashtags, it will help you find, you know, organizations, and just go for it. Um, One thing that was very interesting was the last paper that I got accepted. When I submitted the paper, they asked for my Twitter handle. And this, I think this was Journal of Bacteriology. (laughs) And you were like, yes! Like, ah! It's the purple paint. <laughs> <Except>. <laughs> but yeah, that's where things are going now. Like you put your, you don't have to, but you can put your Twitter on your. <laughs> yeah. But now, you know, they're doing more research on kind of the impact of social media and, you know, on things that we care about as scientists. Mm-hmm. And preliminary evidence suggests that tweeting your articles leads to more citations. I don't know if I'll include this, because um, this is kind of in a different direction, but one thing I wanted to ask that I was mm-hmm. curious about mm-hmm. was, it's almost very metaphorical, right? This, like, you're alone in the snow day, and you're, <laughs> you know, you're feeling, like, alone because you're yeah. stuck in your house, yeah. and you do this roll call. But in some ways, it feels like it, sort of this metaphor, not like, oh, I'm mm-hmm. feeling isolated because mm-hmm. I'm snowed in. Yeah. But, you know, as a person of color in the STEM field, 
do you feel like Black and STEM, in a lot of ways, has helped you realize, like, oh, I'm not at all alone? Oh, yeah. Definitely. And, and you know, that this is kind of happening in two ways, continuously. Um, when I was finishing my dissertation, to have the wealth of experience along with the perspective of being black and in some cases it was being a woman and being a mom kind of all of these combinations of you know that make up my identity um the other thing was within black and stem to be black and have a phd in the sciences or engineering or math is the norm you know so much so that i had to go to some people who felt like, oh, these are all PhD, this is what this f- was for. And we had to actually stop and take the time to say, no, it's just, we're not used to so many of us <laughs> being in one kind of sphere at one time. And, you know, in the time that I have, that, that Black and Sim started, what is both helpful and hard is that, you know, for example, I met Jedida Eisler through Black and STEM, and she's the first black woman PhD from Yale in astrophysics. And it was crushing that we're still having firsts. But at the same time, you know, she's someone who is an example to me. Um, Monica Cox, who is was the first tenured um, black woman professor at Purdue who is now chair of a new department at The Ohio State University. Like, that's unheard of. Mm -hmm. To me, that's inspirational. To me, that's, it means a lot to to be able to connect in those ways. And it helps to put things in perspective that I feel extremely isolated, but um, I have this support system. Mm that understands you know it's I have a phenomenal support system here and at the same time that having that kind of that nuance Mm -hmm. considered is is different it 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 makes a big difference so you know it's really (laughs) I can't I cannot say enough and you know I was so exhausted when I defended and you know my brothers were posting pictures and things like that and I just wanted to sleep and you know I just remember opening my eyes the next morning and saying like oh, who even cares that I did this and I woke up and I just had so many messages from people just through Black and Stem saying congratulations this means so much to us that you've accomplished this so it's great <laughs> all right Dan what'd you think about that I mean, it's such a cool story and it's like a lightning strike. Uh, she didn't expect it, and it could have gone any other way. But wow, what an amazing opportunity. Yeah, I thought that was pretty amazing. And what about that Twitter poster session thing? And by random chance, it's happening today. Pretty amazing. One thing that Stephanie mentioned, happening today, the Royal Chemistry Society is having a Twitter-only poster session. What do you mean, Twitter-only poster session? Twitter and posters are different media. Yeah, so there's this hashtag. You can check it out. It's... RSC poster, and let me pull this up for you, Dan. There you go. So I guess people in this poster session, they've posted their posters, and people, look at all this. Let's oh, yeah. So it's, it's just a tiny version, uh, an image of whatever poster you probably presented at your last meeting. Yeah, it's pretty neat. And, you know, you don't have to travel, pay to travel somewhere and interact with only the people who happen to come by. Um, 
so I could tweet to these people and ask them questions. Yeah. Walk, walk me through the introduction first, please. That's pretty cool. So you can skim through, maybe um, add a couple other search, search terms to the hashtag RSC poster and find people working in your field. Yeah, and and I thought it was also cool, you know, not just sharing your research. And I talked a little bit about you know doing that myself. But Stephanie even mentioned she had postdoc job offers just because she had posted results and information about her research on Twitter. Yeah, it's kind of in line with what would you've been able to do with your paper. Um, you know, I, I was fascinated by her comment that um, research that gets tweeted gets discussed, gets cited. And my first thought was like, oh, that's that's kind of weird. We want the the best research to just rise to the top on its own merits. But the reality is there are already inherent um, biases and problems in the publication system. If you get into this journal and not that journal because the editor had a bad day, it changes your your citations. And so maybe this is a way to to make it so that anybody can get their research promoted and noticed. So yeah, absolutely. Could be cool. Nothing better than tweeting out a link to your research article in an open access journal, huh? It's an amazing future, Josh. Man. And you know, Dan, I had this one other thought as, you know, we talked about the science march not too long ago and the importance of scientists being out in the open and sharing what it is that we do. And, you know, I thought this goes along with that, Dan. Twitter is a really useful tool for scientists to just identify themselves and say, hey, look at me, I'm a scientist. Not only this is what I do, but this is why it's important. Yeah, if Twitter is just Donald Trump and Kim Kardashian, then we all lose. Uh, It needs to have voices from real people um, doing important work. That's true. And so I want to just encourage our listeners who maybe listened to Stephanie, heard this episode, and are feeling encouraged, like, you know what, maybe I want to try this. Maybe I want to jump on this Twitter thing uh, and share my research. So I would encourage you, if you don't have a Twitter account, Set one up. There's a cool hashtag that you could introduce yourself with your inaugural tweet. This one went around not too long ago. It's the hashtag actual living scientist. And so this was a trending topic not too long ago where people... Louis Pasteur didn't do it then? <laughs> not that I saw. But yeah, wait, you can identify yourself and say, hey, this is me. This is what I work on. Uh, maybe search for some researchers in your field, uh, some faculty in your department or that you like, and maybe they're on there. Or you know what? Just get some of your fellow grad students or postdocs together who are in your department, and you can form this little community from the ground up. I'll do that. And make sure that you change your icon to an egg because everybody's doing like photos of themselves, and that's so old school, but now everybody wants to be an egg do, like me. Do studies show how... Uh, People with who retain the egg photo, do they get more job offers? So or? many more job <laughs> offers because it, it just encapsulates the potential of you as a, a human being in that egg. It's that mystique. Yep. I agree. All right. And the last thing I thought is it would be really cool for us to hear about what do our listeners do? What do you research? So one thing that we would love to do this week is to have you tweet to us at Hello PhD and just say what you work on. What do you study? And maybe we'll talk about some of those on the show because we don't really know what yeah, you do. I mean, we get a few of you. We get tweets and and have conversations, and it's always fun. Like it's really cool to see those come in. So uh, it is valuable for us. It's fun for us, and I think it'd be cool for everybody who listens to talk to each other too. All right, Dan, do you have a word puzzle for us? I do. The clue last week came from Megan Bond. 
and it was, this life-saving mold probably shouldn't be applied via paintbrush. Any ideas on life-saving molds, Josh? Well, Dan, the dig, first dig deep. <laughs> the first life-saving mold that comes to mind for me is penicillin. That is correct. It comes from the Latin root penicillin, and it means painter's brush. It actually is the same root that we get the word pencil from. People used to write things with very fine, single-haired um, brushes. And so it came to uh, mean pencil later. But it's co- they call it penicillin because if you scroll down, Josh, I've got a picture of it. Oh, I see that. It looks like a broom. It sure does. So the, the little spore fruiting bodies on the uh, penicillin mold look like a broom. It's a little brush. So it's got a stalk and then the, all these little canidia. Is that how you say that? Sure. So there you have it, Josh. Let me give you the clue for next week's puzzle, and I've been asked via survey to make these slightly harder. Oh, a hard one. Good. Well, that makes me feel extra bad that I don't always know the answer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think they're tough, but anyway. um, The clue for next week is, because this organ is all flesh, it makes a sweet appetizer or entree. I'll read it one more time. Because this organ is all flesh, it makes a sweet appetizer or entree. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue. Once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. We will randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. Kind of a gross one this week. All right, Dan. Great episode. I was excited to talk about Twitter, Josh. I learned quite a few things today, so maybe I'll change my profile from an egg to a small bird. You're growing up fast. I am. <laughs> Might we see more Twitter action? It'll just out be of a you? beak coming out of the egg <laughs> next week. That would actually be an awesome Twitter avatar. The beak cracking. I'm sure somebody's it. done it. Yeah. Probably, probably. Well, we have gotten some great feedback from our survey over the last couple of weeks with lots of great show ideas. Um, if you have other ideas for things you would like to hear us talk about on the show, or if you have a question for us you'd like to answer on the show, you can email us podcast at hellophd.com. Or we expect to get a lot more tweets at HelloPhD, and we would love to hear from you. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. That helps others find the show, and we love the feedback. If you don't like the show, you should find something else to listen to. Yeah, there's a lot of podcasts out there. You really shouldn't waste your time if you don't like the show. But they wouldn't have gotten this far, would they? That's true. I would say no one who doesn't like the show would still be listening at this point. I can't believe we're still listening at this point. All right, let's get out of here, and we will be back at you next time. We'll see you then, Josh. And if you want to follow Stephanie, which you definitely should, she is the Purple Page on Twitter.